You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Scurvy Pete, Hefei, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. If you would not be forgotten as soon as you are dead and rotten, either write things worth reading or do things worth the writing. That's a line from the 1738 edition of Poor Richard's Almanac, written by Benjamin Franklin. I love that quote, and I'm a fan of Franklin himself. He's easy to like, which isn't necessarily to be said for all the founding fathers. He was an abolitionist and a revolutionary and a scientist and an innovator and a publisher, and he established a colonial communication network as the postmaster general. And he managed to live up to both aspects of his quote. He wrote extensively on a variety of subjects, and his life was one about which untold books have been written. However, When I'm reading about pirates and privateers, I think about that quote a lot. There's a similar sentiment to be found in the Iliad. Achilles, one of the heroes, is forced to choose between either Nostos, a victorious homecoming, or Cleos, a glory in battle. Odysseus is perhaps the most famous character in the Iliad that chose the homecoming. Achilles, on the other hand, chooses glory. However, that glory winds up taking his life. However, he is rewarded and remembered in song by the muses, and the gods even go so far to say that he has earned a sort of immortality, everlasting Cleos. I think about these sentiments when I'm reading about pirates, because, well, so many of the pirates that we have talked about and many more that we will talk about are famous. Well, they're infamous, but they're definitely well-known historical figures. But when I'm reading about them, I encounter other figures in those stories who were, to the standards of their time at least, honorable. Men of duty and ambition and of action. Men like Achilles in a lot of ways, and by and large, today, those men have been forgotten. If you took, for example, Woods Rogers... He was a privateer. He circumnavigated the globe, and he wrote a best-selling book about it. He served his country in wartime and in a far more dangerous game of politics. And yet, we don't remember him for any of that. 
He would gain a small amount of celebrity during his life, but we remember him because his story would go on to intersect with that of Edward Teach and Charles Vane and the Pirate Republic at Nassau. That's why he was portrayed by a dashingly handsome actor on TV, on Black Sails, not his years of good service to the Crown of England, but as a villain in a show about pirates. I encountered this again when I was reading about Admiral Sir John Narborough. Now, I've talked about Narborough before, and I will again, but be honest, how much do you know about Sir John Narborough? Even if you know the name, compare that to how much you know about Blackbeard. Now, Narborough didn't wallow away in obscurity, far from it. He published a book, and he bought an estate, and he won honors and glory in battle. He had a baronet created in his honor. Last time, on the last episode, while the pirates were in the Galapagos, Ambrose Crowley actually named one of the islands Narborough Island in his honor. Sir Narborough did fine for himself, but is he remembered? Really remembered like Achilles is remembered? Of course not. But Blackbeard is. Perhaps it's... Well, maybe it's the larger-than-life element of both characters. Achilles is a fictional character, after all, and Blackbeard isn't remembered for stealing medicine from Charleston. He's remembered for the devilish, fearsome creature of legend, uh, a caricature that he created. I suppose, in that, it comes down to a question of what's important to you. The question from the Iliad, between Nostos and Cleos, between homecoming and glory. Men like John Narborough, or Odysseus, answered the call, and they served. But then they went home. They had families that they cared for and loved. They left all that behind. But men like Blackbeard or Achilles or even the pirates we're going to talk about today, some of them, well, they left nothing behind. Or maybe that's all nonsense. The most famous pirate on this second buccaneer expedition into the Pacific was William Dampier, and he left a great deal behind him. He expanded scientific understanding of the natural world, and he did so from the back of a pirate ship. And then men like John Cook, the first captain of Bachelor's Delight, was buried on a beach in Costa Rica in an unadorned grave. But then there are pirates that straddle the line between Nostos and Cleos. There were pirates that weren't on the account searching for fortune and glory, nor were they there simply to earn a living. They had something else in mind. Charles Swan fits this mold for me perfectly. He was an old-time privateer. He sailed from Port Royal in her heyday, and even he marched on Panama under Admiral Morgan. He and the other sailors alongside him in those early days did so for, well, well there was money. The ancient Greeks would have called it nomos, but they were also very much aware that they were part of something bigger than themselves, something that would be remembered. There was certainly in that an element of honor and glory. But most of those privateers were privateers. They did so with a commission, and when those commissions dried up, Charles Swan, along with many others, turned to legitimate trading. They were licensed to do so. Swan took a wife, he had children, and wanted to build a life for them. He wanted to leave something behind. His story is not unlike that of Odysseus. 
he went to sea in search of Cleos and Nomos, glory and spoils, but he would eventually choose Nostos, the, the nest, the homecoming. And like Odysseus, his road home would be long and fraught with peril. This is episode 63, Nostos and Cleos. Charles Swan chose to set sail for the Pacific after the trial of Bartholomew Sharp. He wasn't the only captain to choose to do so. Sharp's trial in London was big news, and the riches of Peru were well documented. However, Swan did so legally. His ship, Signet, was owned by wealthy investors and filled with 5,000 pounds sterling in valuable cargo to trade. The reason I was thinking about Sir John Narborough is because he embarked on a voyage very much like Swan's 14 years earlier. He sailed for the Pacific to trade and to explore the Spanish Main. Now, he did so as a private enterprise, but he also had an official English sanction to do so. He had orders to map and record whatever ports he might find that were suitable entry points for English colonists. He failed in that mission, but Bartholomew Sharp and Basil Ringrose, whether or not they were instructed to do so, they succeeded where Sir John Narborough failed. But then, Charles Swan sailed off, almost in Narborough's footsteps. He intended to trade in the major ports along the Pacific coast of South America and meet with local dignitaries there. He even intended to visit the very same ports that were designated in Narborough's plans, and he employed Basil Ringrose to aid him, who knew the region better than anyone else. It was... Sir Narborough that originally sent me down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theory involving the Pacific Coast and the English. He failed in his official mission, but when the pirates tried, they succeeded. And Charles Swan tried to do things on the up and up, only to be forced to turn to piracy. But I wonder, well, who's to say he wasn't approached in some pub by a bewigged gentleman in a fancy coat? Maybe a representative of the Duke of York, or maybe the East India Company, or the Bank of Scotland. Maybe Swan took a bag of coin to fund his expedition in return for reconnaissance, to keep his eyes open and record his findings, not to engage in any military affairs, but to record. It certainly would explain his letters home, after he turned to a less legitimate form of trade, he began to write a steady stream of letters to his wife, to investors, and possibly to his shadowy, perfumed, aristocratic benefactor, if one existed. All of those letters defended his actions. They argued over and over again that he never wanted to turn to piracy. He called it privateering, but it wasn't. He claimed that he faced mutiny from his crew and arrest from the Spanish, and both of those facts are probably true. He entered the Pacific alongside Captain John Eaton, yes, but they parted ways immediately. Now, Captain Swan, after parting ways with Captain Eaton, sailed for Valdivia and entered their harbor on April 2, 1684, under a flag of truce. 
Narborough had done almost exactly the same thing, but honestly, there's not a lot of other options when you're coming up from the south on the coast of South America. Valdivia is about the most southern port of note in 1684. This was only a few days after Captain Eaton and Captain Cook met up out in the ocean before heading on to the Juan Fernandez Islands. Captain Swan was initially allowed to stay at Valdivia, and he did a brisk business for a few days. The merchants there were more than happy to receive him and trade for his goods. They could get better prices than they would receive from the Spanish trade monopoly. All the trade in the Spanish Americas was handled by a public company out of Cadiz that was very strictly overseen by the crown. This company was similar to the Dutch and English India companies, but it had far more government control. It actually played a not insignificant role in why the West Indian pirates were so successful. More competitive Spanish trade companies, like the Dutch or English East India companies, well, they would have made goods cheaper, and the need for pirates' ill-gotten goods would have been virtually non-existent. However, after two days of good trading, the local authorities caught wind of what was going on down at the docks. According to Captain Swan, quote, an ambuscade of between 100 and 200 men came out and fired upon a poor eight of us in the yawl, end quote. In 1684, a yawl referred to a single-masted ship's boat used to ferry goods from the larger merchant ships out in the water to the docks. But in that attack, two of his men were killed there at the docks of Valdivia, and two or three more were captured. That means three or four men, including Captain Swan, were able to make it back to Signet and escape the harbor at Valdivia. He'd done a good bit of trade there, but really not very much of it. He still had nearly all of his 5,000 pounds in valuable cargo on board, and he still needed to trade it. So he sailed on. He intended to try his luck at the next suitable port on the coast of South America. At Valdivia, though, he had attempted to gain the trust of the Spanish authorities. He warned them about Captain Eaton, the English pirates somewhere out in the sea. Now, I can understand his reasoning. He wanted to build goodwill with the Spanish, and Captain Eaton had been busy robbing and burning and killing his way down the coast of Brazil. Swan knew he was no good, and he wanted to warn the people of Valdivia about this potential menace. I might have done the very same thing in his shoes. But it is a little naive. He was in the territory of one of his nation's oldest and most antagonistic enemies. They were recent allies, but ancient rivals. And that place, Valdivia in particular, had suffered the attentions of other English pirates before. Were I one of the crewmen on board the Signet, I might have suggested, Hey, Captain, how about we wait to tell them about the murderous English pirates? Maybe until we're about to leave. Maybe it would be a good idea to write them a letter. Whatever his reasoning, though, Captain Swan told them about the English and sailed on. He still intended to trade with the Spanish. He tried again at the next port up the coast, Valparaiso, 
and he received much the same reception, many Spanish soldiers coming out to meet his vessel, only this time he didn't get the two days of fruitful trading. It was clear that word of his presence and that of Captain Eaton was spreading in front of him, moving faster than he was. He realized he wasn't going to have much luck there in Peru. He sailed close to the next couple of ports, Coquimbo and La Serena, but both of them were protected against the English by this point. They had Coast Guard ships in the harbor waiting for him. So he chose to cut his losses and sail due north. Now, right about this time, the pirates under Captains Cook and Eaton were arriving at the Galapagos Islands out to the west. Swan could have sailed for them. Basil Ringrose knew where they were, but instead he passed between them and right on by Lima and Guayaquil for the Isla de Plata, and then he sailed past the Bay of Panama right to the Gulf of Nicoya in modern-day Costa Rica. Now here's where things get a bit weird, and honestly I start to find some of the records kept by the crews of Signet and Bachelor's Delight to be a bit suspect. If you remember last time, the pirates with Captains Eaton and Cook sailed for Mexico after the Galapagos, and then Captain Cook died just off Cabo Blanco in modern-day Costa Rica. Well, the Gulf of Nicoya lies just north of Cabo Blanco. Seriously, if you take a look at the map of Costa Rica, Cabo Blanco is at the point of a small peninsula that creates the Gulf of Nicoya. They're right next door to one another. Now, Captain Swan arrived there before Bachelor's Delight. Swan wasn't forced to stop several times on his voyage due to sick crewmates, as the Bachelor's Delight was. However, the Indians that met William Dampier and Edward Davis and John Eaton, well, they didn't mention anything about a crew of English pirates in the bay. At least, Dampier didn't mention hearing of them, or of finding any signs of pirates nearby, and it was really nearby, like within 30 miles of each other. And Swan was in a bay that I am sure Davis and Eaton would have wanted to use to hide their own ships. It's conceivable that the Nicholas and Bachelor's Delight were hiding and just managed not to be seen by Captain Swan or the Signet, but it's hard to believe. It gets even more difficult to believe when you learn that Captain Swan did in fact meet other English pirates in the Bay of Nicoya. He encountered Captain Peter Harris the Younger at anchor in the bay, just hanging out, no big deal. Four English pirate vessels all happened to be within about 20 miles or so of each other due to a shockingly large number of totally unrelated coincidences, but they still managed to avoid each other completely. We need to remember that our two best sources of information might not be 100% reliable. When William Dampier was writing his book, he was facing a court-martial for a, an expedition that would come later. He might be very likely to paint his association with other pirates in as positive a light as possible. Charles Swan's records come in the form of those letters we mentioned earlier those in which he defended himself vehemently and claimed to be at the worst a reluctant pirate and at the best, in his case, a captive of his own mutinous crew. It's entirely possible that both men were trying to 
distance themselves from as much piracy as possible. The three ships, the Signet, Nicholas, and Bachelor's Delight, all arrived in the Pacific at virtually the same time. It's possible, and this is pure speculation, not at all supported by the text, that they may have been in much closer contact than any among them choose to admit. Were you, hypothetically speaking, a history podcaster trying to tie the events of an episode back to a rather shaky premise you arrived at because you were listening to The Iliad on Audible, read by Alfred Molina, one of our greatest living actors, were that the case, you could argue that both William Dampier and Charles Swan were looking toward their homecoming. They were attempting to secure their nostos. Neither man wanted the infamy or notoriety that pirates like Blackbeard actively sought. So we have to take everything they say with at least a little bit of salt. But even if all three ships were somehow working together behind the scenes, it appears that Captain Peter Harris was actually just there by chance. It's conceivable that he'd communicated with John Cook before the Revenge headed out to pick up Dampier in Virginia, but I doubt it. What's more possible is that he heard about Revenge heading for the South Seas and decided to undertake his own mission for the Pacific in hopes of meeting up. Or it's possible, it's even likely, that he just went on this voyage of his own volition and happened to meet some other pirates there. Now, there is a bit of consternation between historians about the validity of the story of Peter Harris the Younger. His uncle, Peter Harris the Elder, was on the first Pacific adventure under John Coxon. Peter Harris the Elder took his men, alongside Coxon and Sharp and many others, from the Bocas del Toro to the Golden Isle, off the coast of Darien. From there, he crossed the Isthmus of Panama, through the lands of the Kuna people. He gained the aid of the Kuna, and together they and the pirates stormed the walls of the stockade at Santa Maria. They looted the fort of all the gold they could carry and gave the rest to the Kuna. At Santa Maria, Harris, the elder, and the pirates obtained ten or twelve canoes and a periagua to make their way downriver to the Gulf of San Miguel. Harris and the rest of the pirates took their small flotilla west to the Bay of Panama, where they fought a heated sea battle with the Spanish ships guarding Panama. The battle lasted all day, but finally the pirates were victorious. Peter Harris led the English forces to victory in that battle, but he took a wound to his leg that festered and killed him. However, the pirates left behind chose not to ransack Panama and instead headed east to Isla del Rey where they captured some pearling vessels and great halls of pearls. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. 
Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Peter Harris the Younger was his nephew. He probably lived at Port Royal, although possibly it was St. Kitts. He was already roving when his uncle entered the Pacific, but probably just as a regular crew member, not a captain quite yet. His crew, though, didn't join the Pacific Adventure. They were too small-time to be of much consequence. However, in 1681, word of the Pacific Adventure reached the Caribbean with the arrival of John Cook and Edward Davis and William Dampier. They would have brought word of the bravery and the death of Peter Harris the Elder. He was, in the world of the Brethren of the Coast, a much-loved and deeply respected captain. His nephew, Peter Harris the Younger, would have heard about his death. He may even have been among the pirates that rescued Dampier and his fellows there on the coast of Darien. He disappeared from the scene for a while, but he re-entered in 1684, and his story goes something like this. Peter Harris the Younger took his men from the Mosquito Coast to the Golden Isle off the coast of Darien. From there he crossed the Isthmus of Panama through the lands of the Kuna people. He gained the aid of the Kuna, and together they and the pirates stormed the walls of the stockade at Santa Maria. They looted the fort of all the gold they could carry and gave the rest to the Kuna. At Santa Maria, Harris and the other pirates obtained eight or ten canoes and a small bark to make their way downriver to the Gulf of San Miguel. Harris and the pirates took their small flotilla west into the Bay of Panama, where they fought a heated sea battle with the Spanish ships guarding Panama. The battle lasted all day, but finally the pirates were victorious. Harris led the English forces to victory in that battle, and survived. However, the pirates chose not to ransack Panama, and instead headed east to Isla del Rey, where they captured some pearling vessels and great halls of pearls. That all sounds a bit similar. Now, there are fewer details about Peter Harris the Younger, thanks to not having Ringrose and Dampier to write things down, and there also wasn't any grand tale of rescuing King Goldencap's daughter from a rapacious Spaniard, which you might remember from the original Pacific Adventure. The alliance with the Kuna also seems to have gone much more smoothly for Peter Harris the Younger, since the Kuna already knew the English, and even knew Peter Harris's uncle. The other main difference is that the men under Peter Harris the Younger made a lot more money. Every man among the crew got 24 ounces of gold dust, and Harris himself, at least, carried off a lump of gold, quote, the size of a hen's egg, end quote. In modern dollars and modern gold prices, that gold dust would be worth $32,000 a man. Taking into account the entire crew, they stole over $3 million worth of gold in modern dollars. Still, though, that story of Peter Harris the Younger is kind of like a reboot, right? They kept the original story, but changed just enough of the details to make it fresh and hip. Hence, the contention. But it mostly appears to be true. Peter Harris actually did these things, following in his uncle's footsteps. If we were to try and understand his motivation, 
Well, that's, first of all, a foolish idea when we have so little on him personally, especially before he met up with Dampier. But were we to do so, I think we would need to take a close look at his decision to follow his uncle so closely. Now, there are some practical reasons to do so. Up in the West Indies, England was busy prosecuting pirates and refusing to hand out commissions. They, and Spain as well, were actively hunting down pirates. So the choice to leave the West Indies was a good one. And Harris only had 100 men under his command. He didn't have a great warship that would make taking Campeche or San Augustine or Maracaibo possible. If you were to take these 100 men to the richest hunting grounds, the Pacific makes the most sense. And if you were to do so, it was much easier to enter the Pacific overland. And if you were going to do that, it made a lot more sense to travel through Darien, where there were friendly Kuna people rather than hostile natives and Spanish patrols, which existed basically everywhere else. But from there, your steps would naturally take you to Santa Maria, it lay on the river and had a lot of gold behind their weakly defended walls. And then you would sail to Panama Bay. It was the closest place nearby. But after that, you were likely to go to those rich pearl fisheries to the east. Step by step, it's only natural. But his decision to enter the Pacific at all strikes me here. There were other things he could have done. There were more than a few shipwrecks in the West Indies that he could have salvaged. England was actively searching for young men with crews to do so. There were always the wrecking operations up in the Bahamas around New Providence Island. They weren't the most profitable, but he could have stayed there and been at ease. Or he could have just stuck around the West Indies and engaged in regular piracy. Plenty of other ships were doing the same thing just then, but instead... Peter Harris the Younger chose a relatively difficult crossing overland through mountains and swamps and jungles to attack the Pacific, just like his uncle. I think, and you should feel free to discard this completely, but I think he was searching for something beyond plunder and rum and women. He followed his uncle at a young age into the Brethren of the Coast. He chose to raid the Spanish and capture ships, then, with his revered and respected uncle, now deceased, he chose to take up his mantle. He wanted to see through what his uncle had died in accomplishing. Now, the money and the wine and the women were certainly part of the equation, but I think there's a part of him that wanted to either equal or even surpass his uncle's accomplishments. Not as a slight to his uncle, but to carry on the tradition, and even possibly to pay back the Spanish that killed him. In short, I don't think he was searching for money or a homecoming. I think he was searching for glory. He wanted to do honor to his uncle and do the rest of his family proud and to achieve something that he would be remembered for. Or then again, maybe not. If he was searching for that, he was only moderately successful. His uncle is far better known. I mean, Peter Harris the Younger doesn't even have his own Wikipedia entry. He was overshadowed not only by his uncle, but by the more powerful and influential pirates he was with his entire career. Maybe he was just looking for a buck and decided to join up with a growing number of pirates raiding the Pacific coast. 
But if that was the case, he did pretty well for himself and his crew. They'd taken far more plunder than Charles Swan on Signet or Edward Davis on Bachelor's Delight or John Eaton on the Nicholas. Possibly he'd actually taken more plunder than all three of them combined, unless you count tons and tons of flour as a good haul. Now where were we? Right. Harris had taken some of those pearl ships on the islands to the east, but then he headed west past the Gulf of Panama for the Gulf of Nicoya. It was, quote, a place where Spaniards built their ships, end quote, and Harris was hoping to abandon his fleet of canoes and a bark for a proper pirate ship. His bark had four swivel guns, but it didn't have any proper heavy guns. As it happens, though, he did find a ship there. But instead of a Spanish ship that he could steal, it was occupied by a crew of disgruntled English sailors. It was the Signet, under Captain Swan. When they met there, the two captains and their crews met to confer with one another. Historian David F. Marley writes that Charles Swan, quote, entered the South Sea as a merchant trader, not a raider, but meeting with continual rebuffs from the Spaniards, his crew now wished to go a-roving. Confronted with Harris's much more numerous freebooters, Swan finally acceded, or else he would have been left with, and he quotes Swan here, no one to sail the ship. End quote. Swan and Harris met to confer, but it was actually the crew of Signet that talked with Harris and his men, and saw their piles of gold dust and sacks full of pearls. Harris was generous, he shared his wine and some of his food, and then Swan actually managed to get a bit of that Santa Maria gold. He traded with the pirates there in the Gulf of Nicoya. He had jewelry and fine wines and other baubles that the pirates might want. Remember, they had the equivalent of $30,000 each, so they were willing to buy up some of his finery. Now that helped Swan out, but not much. He still had the vast majority of his stock unsold. The two crews, finally, after the trading was done, sat down to decide whether or not to join up. In truth, the Signet was going to join with Harris whether or not Swan allowed it, but he was a skilled negotiator and he knew the art of bartering. He agreed to split whatever gold his men took into equal shares among them. But, and this is key, he would set aside enough to, at the very least, repay his investors back in London. He owed them money. He owed them, at the very least, £5,000 for his goods and a sum in addition to that for the use of their ship. Now, they might not see a good return on their investment when Swan returned. His reputation might even take a hit from that. But Charles Swan intended to stay out of debtor's prison. Then the timelines get a bit screwy. While the two ships were at anchor in the Gulf of Nicoya, the Bachelor's Delight and the Nicholas arrived at Cabo Blanco, just to the south. That's when Dampier and Davis and Wafer pretended to be Spanish sailors out of Lima and were invited into the Indian town there. Last time, I mentioned rumors, shared by the Indians, of pirates to the north. Now, Dampier believed those to be the raids of Lorho de Graff and Pierre Le Picard and Jean Rose up in the West Indies. More on them next time. He may have been right about that, but 
What if something here was lost in translation? What if the Indians were saying, Hey, guys, there's some pirates up to the north, and Dampier, who was... Remember, Dampier was very intelligent, but he was also very proud of his intelligence and had a habit of looking down on people that he thought were making foolish suggestions. Well, what if Dampier thought that they were too far away up in the West Indies to be of any consequence, and the Indians said, No, they're like right over there. I can take you to them right now. We can be there this afternoon. And then Dampier probably just scoffed at the ignorant savages. But however it happened, the two pairs of ships somehow missed each other there on the coast of Costa Rica. Swan and Harris left the Gulf of Nicoya on August 5th, 1684. It would be a couple of weeks before the other pirates would leave Cabo Blanco. They arrived, Swan and Harris, on October 2nd at Isla de Plata, or Drake's Isle. Somehow, when they arrived, they found Captain Edward Davis and the Bachelor's Delight. Now, Basil Ringrose was on board Signet, and the men on board Bachelor's Delight, including Edward Davis, William Dampier, Lionel Wafer, and probably about 50 of the other men, had been on the first Pacific adventure with Basil Ringrose, he was their companion, but when John Cook and Edward Davis and the crew under him, including Dampier and Wafer, when they voted to leave Bartholomew Sharp's command, Basil Ringrose sided with Sharp. And later on, when he was facing a court-martial, he testified some less-than-complimentary things about Cook and Davis and Dampier and Wafer. At least, he concurred with Sharp when Sharp said those things. So I wonder if, when the Bachelor's Delight and the Signet met up, if there was a moment of tension. They realized everyone was English and everybody was happy until Basil Ringrose showed his face. And then, sure, Captain Swan, we'll let you join up, but first we're going to unceremoniously slit your navigator's throat and dump the body overboard. Now, nobody mentions that in any of the records, and it's possible there really was no bad blood there, but... I do imagine there were members of the two crews that tended to avoid each other when, whenever possible. Now, it was here on Drake's Isle that the crew of Bachelor's Delight got their first glimpse of the gold dust and the pearls and all the other riches that Peter Harris had already won. That was when a notion began to form in Dampier's mind. And if you remember, Captain Eaton left the company of the Bachelor's Delight a few weeks before arriving at Isla Plata. Now, he left because Davis and his crew were demanding larger shares due to their experience. Apparently, that still held true. Maybe not the bit about larger shares exactly, but they guarded their hierarchy in the fleet. Captain Davis had been buccaneering and commanding men for years now. Everyone on his crew was an old veteran, and Bachelor's Delight itself was a 36-gun man-of-war. Captain Swan sailed with Morgan, true, but he was a merchant now, and the Signet itself was a fat-bottom 16-gun merchantman. Captain Harris had a famous uncle, and was by far the richest man and the most successful pirate there, but he sailed on a bark with four swivel guns and a few canoes. Davis had the largest crew and the largest ship, and both were loyal to him, so he became the de facto admiral of their little pirate fleet. I do wonder what might have happened if they had listened to Harris's suggestion, which came up here, 
that they attack Panama immediately. Instead, they listened to Davis and attempted to attack Guayaquil. That was a... it was a bust. It was an embarrassing failure, but they did come away with those 1,000 slaves. And that's when Dampier's idea blossomed, and he shared that idea with the other crews. They had men and guns and food and slaves, free labor. Santa Maria was still abandoned or still weak after it had been attacked. Remember, he said, quote, There was never a greater opportunity put into the hands of men to enrich themselves than we had to have gone and settled ourselves at Santa Maria. Add to this that the Indians were mortal enemies to the Spaniards and were our fast friends and ready to receive and assist us. If all the strength the Spaniards have in Peru had come against us, we could have kept them out. Besides, which was the principal thing, we had the North Seas to befriend us. In a short time, we should have had assistance from all parts of the West Indies. Many thousands of privateers from Jamaica and the French islands would have flocked over to us. And long before this time, we might have been masters of not only those mines, the richest gold mines ever yet found in America, but of all the coast. End quote. That is a bold proposition. And the pirates were intrigued, but... They were still divided on it. Many of them only wanted to reap all that they could from the gold mines quickly and leave. They were interested in profit. Some of them thought that it was an enterprise that was too time-consuming and too dangerous and far too lofty. Dampier suggests that they called it a golden dream. Those men, well, they had a different dream. They wanted to return home. But some of them, most notably here, Dampier and Wafer and Peter Harris, well, they were fully on board with the proposition. They saw that dream in full, and they saw the power that it would have afforded them. They saw the pirate haven that could have been built there. They saw the huge numbers of pirates that would have sailed there and called it their home. They saw the ability to cast off the shackles of the old European powers, and to resist both Spain and England and France and build something new. They saw, in short, the glory that could have been theirs for the taking, if only they would reach out and grasp it. The pirates debated, and they argued, and they didn't really come to any real conclusions, but they did know that they were still too weak to take on any of the larger cities on the coast of Peru. So they decided, at the least, to go and take a look at Santa Maria. The very least they could do was sift through the rubble there and poke into the mines and maybe make off with their own shares of gold dust. So the fleet headed north, and all the while Dampier and Wafer and Harris whispered about what they might be able to build there. Perhaps they even made plans to split up from the rest of the fleet if everyone else chose not to stay. But when they arrived, they would meet someone there that would change all of their plans. Our pirate fleet has grown to take on four crews. It's still not large, but it's not inconsequential. Next time, they are going to be joined by even more pirates. We're going to 
introduce those that we have not met and reintroduce those that we have seen before and discuss each of their roads coming to Santa Maria. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody that has helped support the show. Everybody that has become a patron on Patreon, I could not do this without you. As well as everyone who has left us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show. And those of you who have helped spread the word on Twitter or Reddit or in real life. I couldn't do this without all of you, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.